excited to be here. Um, I've actually worshiped with you the last two Sundays. Hunter, appreciated your messages. Um, and man, I, I, I am just scared of you that you will tackle Romans, Romans 7 especially. I, when it comes up in my Bible reading, I'm like, oh Lord, please, no, it always troubles me. So man, I'm, I am actually impressed. So I'm assuming your wife wrote most of that for you. So, all right. So anyway, guys, um, listen, before we're going to get into God's word today, but before we get started, I'd just like to sort of do a little bit of introduction and tell you why I'm here and why I'm not here, okay, or, or why not I'm here. All right, there we go. Um, first, my job, I'm coming in as an, as an interim pastor. So right off the bat, I'm going to tell you, in no way, under no circumstances, would I ever be your permanent pastor. Not because you're not a great church, but because to do what I need to do, I need to be not considered for that. Now, that may sound a little presumptuous, like you're like, well, you're gonna, you guys are going to want me. No, I don't necessarily believe that. But, um, but I do know, trust me, trust me, I'm good for short doses. I'm guessing we'll probably be here maybe about, we don't, we don't know for sure, but probably about somewhere between se- uh, seven to nine months, maybe. Just depends on, on what we need to do to get ready to, to call a new pastor. But that's about what I'm good for, because if I were here for a year, you'd be going to Red and Jeremy like, oh, just get us anybody, please. We've just had enough of that guy, all right? So, so um, uh, that's what I'm here for. So I'm a little bit like, and I don't want to make it sound more important than it is, but a little bit like, like Elijah coming before, um, you know, or John the Baptist coming before Jesus. Um, that not that I'm John the Baptist or that your new pastor is going to be Jesus. We've looked. He's not sending his resume out, all right? So he's not interested in being your pastor. He's just interested in being your Lord and Savior. So, um, so my job is going to be looking around and seeing, helping us get sort of a vision of where we believe God wants us to be. And the idea is... If we can, as a church, can get a clear idea of where we are and what you've been through and where you believe God's called you to go, then that tells you the kind of pastor you want, you want to call. You want to call a pastor who says, I can get you from here to here. Instead of getting a pastor that says, okay, we just called somebody, he looks good on resume and stuff, so tell us where to go. No, God has called you guys to live here and go through what this church has been through. And God will speak through this church together to figure out where you want to go. And then the next pastor you call will figure out how to get you there the best way and lead you through it. In fact, when you can do that, when you can say that, to, to very clear to the pastor, here we are, here's where we want to go. If he really believes that he can get you from here to here, then what you've also promised him is, as long as I'm leading you where you said you want me to go, where you want to go, you will follow what I do. And that's a very appealing to a pastor, and it also helps you sort of know what we're doing. So sometimes churches that are, that are in interim position, uh, and I've worked with churches that were interims for, had interims for years. I, I had one church that had an interim pastor for eight years. I will not be here that long, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be better than that interim was. Then I'm going I'm to find you somebody newer, all right, quicker. But, um, but what it feels like is sort of like you're paddling around in the middle of the ocean, sort of going in circles, and you finally get that new pastor. He says, okay, great, we're going to head in that direction. But because you as a church haven't really decided where you want to go, what will happen then? There's some people that are like, you know, I've been sitting through this, and I was kind of hoping we'd go this direction, but we're going that direction. And they wind up leaving and that kind of thing. So if we work on it together, that's, that's where my skill is in this. I'll be filling the pulpit mostly. Jeremiah, we're going to share it some. I mean, Hunter, we're going to share the pulpit some, right? You're, okay, we'll talk about that. We and I haven't had a meeting yet, but, but uh, you don't want to miss some of that good teaching, too, regularly. So that's it right there. I'm just going to be here with you uh, temporarily to help you find that new pastor. 
wow, I did not know that the, our, air, our HVAC is really good here, okay? I may have to use heavier weight paper. There I go my, is that, is that God? Is that you telling me to go through this fast and I'm, <laughs> I'm done? So, all right, we'll try. So before we go, let's have a word of prayer again. Now to, to, to get back into God's word here. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for this glorious day that you've given us. Father, I thank you for the people who are here that you have called by the name of Fresno Church. And Father, I know, I trust in you. Seeing your work in the past, I know you have a preferred future for us. And so, Father, I ask that you would guide our hearts and minds as we look into your word today, but as we go through this journey together over the next several months, and that we will hear your voice clearly, that our hearts will beat with yours. And we will know, Father, exactly who you've called us to be in your kingdom, and especially here in the community of Fresno. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the passage I'm going to look at today is John chapter 12. We're going to look at four verses very quickly. Uh, four verses in John. Pray. Now, as you turn to John chapter 12, we're going to be at verses 27 to 30. As you're turning there, let me sort of set the stage. This is a very crucial time in Jesus' life. If you look back in chapter 11, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. And at the end of chapter 11, the Pharisees have gotten together and said, whoa, this is too much. He raised a dead man, and everybody saw it. This is too much. The high priest prophesied Jesus has to die. And so this is the moment they finally said, it is sealed, it is done, we got to get rid of this guy. If you turn over to chapter 13, you find out Jesus is in the last days of his earthly ministry. It is the Last Supper. It is Thursday night before he is arrested that evening and then put on the cross the next morning. And so this is a very crucial time. And as we jump into this passage, we find that Jesus is in the middle of praying here. And so here's what he says, in, starting in verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But that's why I came to this hour, talking about the time. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded, this voice came not for me, but for you. Now, very crucial time going on there. And I look at this passage and I think, that is so typical of so many people. to see. I see in this passage three kinds of people. And here, I'm going to just lay out the outline for you right now. Because uh, it's one of my favorite sayings. It says, there are three kinds of people in this world. And I believe there's three kinds, the same three kinds of people in every group, including churches. There are those who make things happen. There are those who watch things happen. And there are those who wonder, what happened? And in this passage, we see all three of them right here. So we're going to start with the largest group here, the, the very largest group. It is the people who wondered what happened. So some people wonder what happened. You're going to find this just about everywhere we go. This is sort of where, in fact, I felt like this way too many times in my own life, not knowing what's going on. So here's what's going on. Jesus is praying, and he prays and he says, Father, glorify your name. And it says a voice came out of heaven saying, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. But the crowd of people, the majority of the people there that were there, 
heard this voice and said, did you hear that? Is that thunder? Not a cloud in the sky. When's the last time we heard thunder around here? I was just weird. Did you hear that? Just thunder. God spoke and they heard just thunder. Happens all the time. That God's trying to get our attention over and over again and we just miss it because we're not paying attention, because we're not listening, because we're not trying to hear what God is saying to us. Now, to be honest, that happens all over our lives. In fact, uh, you may have heard a man, there's a man, Henry Blackaby wrote a book called Experiencing God. Uh, I, I, I recommend you not read it because it will mess you up. All right, but one of the things that Henry Blackaby says in that is that God is always at work around us. And he is always calling us to participate in his work. And that's what we're looking for is where is God calling us as a church in the future? Now, I'm not saying you're not working now. Boy, I look at the ministries you guys have going on. You guys, man, I am impressed. What you're doing with Rescue the Children, what you're doing with Paintbrush, what you're doing with um, uh, the park ministry. Uh, you guys are going, who's going on the mission trip? I thought, man, I got in this church too late. to get. I would have loved to have been on part of that with you guys, but um, I'm going to miss you guys at that point. We're going to get live updates from you guys when you're here. We're going to get, all right, good. So I'm looking forward. So your church is involved in working, but what we're talking about, where is God calling us to work next? <clears throat> and what kind of leadership do we need to make that happen? But again, I want to encourage you, our natural tendency is to not pay attention to what's going on. Now, I'll give you a little example. Can can any of you hear that I have a slight southern accent? Can anybody hear it? Some people, yeah, some people can get it, some can't. All right, I know that does come, when I get tired or I get frustrated, that's when it will come out. Trust me, what I have right now is nothing like a real Georgia accent. But I do have one. When I came out here to California back in the 80s, um, I came out here, and I was only out here for about six months, and I went back at Christmas time to my parents' home in Valdosta, Georgia. Anybody heard of Valdosta before? Oh, a couple of you have, all right. So as I was, I saw a flew home. Now, Valdosta is a pretty small town. There was only one airline that flew into town, ASA, Airsick Airways, and so it just a little tiny thing. So instead of flying there, we took the cheaper route, and I flew into Jacksonville, Florida. And my parents drove down to Jacksonville and then picked me up and then we drove back to Valdosta. On the way back, we took the back roads and we cut, it, we cut through near the edge of the Okefenokee Swamp, a little town called Fargo. I think it's called Fargo because it's as far as you can go without going into the swamp. And we pulled off to a little convenience store there to get gas and I went inside to get a soft drink. Now, Again, in Fresno, what do you guys call a 12-ounce non-alcoholic carbonated beverage in a can? What do you guys call it? A soda pop, all right. Nobody in Fresno says soda pop. Soda, soda all right. A soda, all right. In, in Georgia, it's a Coca-Cola, all right. Doesn't care. It could be 7-Up. It could be Sprite. It could be Art, but it's a Coca-Cola. That's what it is. So I go to get my soft drink, and I go up to the counter, put it on the counter. The lady goes, one Coca-Cola, will that be all? And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, oh my gosh. It's a wonder she has any teeth in her mouth. It's like, did she made, make it through third grade? It was not my most spiritual moment, all right? And I was just amazed at how thick her southern accent was. It was like, and I was like, it's crazy. Fargo is such a dinky little town. 
And we get back to the thriving metropolis of Valdosta, and everybody spoke that way. I don't know what happened. I don't know if, like, the Soviet Union, it was still the, for those of the younger ones, there was still a Soviet Union back then, okay? And flew over with like a hick bomb and dropped it on the town and everybody lost several IQ points. I don't know what happened. But everybody was like that. I heard people saying like, Daryl, aren't you afraid about being in, in California? It's going to fall off in the ocean. And I just think, oh my goodness. Now, granted, all right, hey, that's my people. That's my tribe, all right? And I, but, but I remember thinking, oh my goodness. Now, what happened? Did they all just pick up these southern southern accents after I left? No. It had always been there, but I'd never paid attention to it. It was there, and I never really got it. Happens all the time. I'll give you another example really quickly. Anybody here heard of Toad Suck Ferry, Arkansas? Has anybody heard? I was doing a camp one time, and I met a group of kids from Toad Suck Ferry. I did not. Yeah, I got proof right there. I wanted you to see. They said they were from Toad Suck Ferry. I, I did not believe them. I thought they were lying. Who would name a town Toad Suck Ferry, Arkansas? It'd be like naming your town I'm a Doofus, California. Why? It's just dumb name. But then, like, after I met them, like, two or three months later, I'm reading the paper. Again, for you younger ones, the Internet used to be printed out and delivered to our houses in the morning. So you may not, you've probably never seen one before. But it, and you always know when people were intelligent because they had smudges on their hand from the ink, all right? So remember, the internet used to be in print long ago. And so I was reading the paper, and I read an article about the Toad Festival in Toad Suck Ferry, Arkansas. I'd probably heard of it before, but I'd never paid attention to it until I met some people from it. And so as we start looking at that, we think, wow, we don't really pay attention, but it is serious. I remember in, when I was in seminary, I was talking to one of my professors, and one of my professors was talking about a number of students that got divorced during the time that they were in seminary. And he said one of the things he heard most commonly was husbands saying, all the signs were there. If I had just been paying attention, I, saw, I, I could see now the times my wife was calling out for help, but I just couldn't see it then. And you know what? Even though I learned that in seminary, I can tell you right now, the biggest struggles I've had with my wife or the time she was giving me clear indications that I needed to change something or do something, and I just didn't listen, that I heard thunder when I should have been listening to the voice of my wife. Our job as a church is going to be not hearing thunder, but hearing God's voice when he speaks to us. And so here's what I want to ask you, as you look around our community right now, Think about the changing needs in our church and in our community. And what opportunities do you see in our community that God may be asking our church to fill? Maybe it's what we've already been doing, but maybe we need to stop doing this. Yeah, there's our, an aerial view of our, of our church right there. You can barely see the little cross right there where we are. So there's sort of present. When you see that, how do we hear God speaking into our lives? about that community and about why we were here. Doesn't mean we do everything. No church can fulfill every need. But what has God called Fresno Church to do? Has it been what we've been doing before? Or is it new stuff? And my job during this time is not to tell you what you should be doing. My job is to lead you to you guys to figure out what you should be doing and where the things are. And churches are one of the toughest things to stop doing things. We are great about starting new stuff, 
but then we keep doing and nobody can remember why. All right, that, that we, it becomes one of our traditions. And church people are like the worst about tradition. Okay, how many of you heard the old story about the woman that cut the ends off the ham? Have you guys heard that one? Okay, for those of you, it, I'll do it real quick. Couple gets married, wife buys a ham, cuts the ends off it before she cooks it, and the husband's like, why you gets mad, you're throwing away good ham? That's the way my mom did it. And it's like, what? No, because we're gonna do it the way my mom did it. And so one day, they're over at her mom's house, and he asked her, why do you cut the ends off ham? Because that's how my mom taught me to do it. I'm like, what's going on here? Why do you do that? So I'm shortening this up for you guys that have heard it already. And so one, they finally, you know, go see the grandmother. She says, why do you cut off the hams off the, uh, in, the, the ends off the ham? She goes, easy. Pan was too small. <laughs> All right? That we start doing something for a right reason, but then the reason we're doing no longer is a reason anymore, but we keep doing it. So that's part of what we're going to be looking at. Now, don't panic. If there's a ministry you love doing at this church, I am not here to kill ministries at all. I'm not going to tell you what you should, should start or stop doing. I'm just saying we're going to look at, in the future, what is God saying about these things? I learned this phrase long ago. You guys heard the phrase, time flies when you're having fun? Okay. It also goes pretty fast when you're just messing around, too. All right? And it will split on by. Uh, Jeremy was talking about how, you know, how many months it's been since, since, uh, since you've had somebody, a regular pastor, uh, in the pulpit and you know you guess where you begin to forget that after a while because if you're just not paying attention the time can slip on by and churches go through what's called missional drift we feel like we have the targets God's heading us toward but then we tend the current drifts us off course and we have to correct every once in a while and and the best time to look at that is when you're in an interim position so that's part of what my job is going to be. It's not all we're going to do. We're going to spend time in God's word. We're going to try to grow. Our job is still to make disciples. We're going to keep doing that. We're just going to figure out the ways we need to do that in the future. So let me ask again, what are some opportunities that you see in your community that others may be missing? People where they're hearing thunder, but God's trying to speak there. Now that's the first group of people in this, in this passage. But there was a second group of people in there. These are the people who watch things happen. Now this is a smaller group. But it says, the crowd of people who were standing by and heard it said it thundered. Others are saying, no, an angel has spoken to him. Now, this is an interesting passage here. It's interesting why they heard a voice. They heard somebody speaking. They said, that's not God. That's just an angel. Now, first, let's think about it. Here is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the, the incarnate Christ who's been with God the Father since, the, since before the foundation of the world for all eternity. And Jesus prays and says, Father, glorify your name. A voice returns. Do you think it was an angel or was it God the Father speaking? Because what angel is going to go, hold, God, hold on a second. I got this, God. Hey, Jesus, Gabriel here, okay? Hey, I've glorified it before. I'll glorify it again. You don't worry about it, all right? No, that didn't happen. This was God the Father speaking. But these people were going, no, 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 no. No, it wasn't that. That wasn't it at all. It wasn't. That, that, that wasn't right. In fact, they even had a word for it. They called it the bath coal. The bath coal. Now, I don't try to impress you with my, my, my Hebrew. I, I, took, I took one year of Hebrew in seminary. Felt like seven, but I took one. And I'm not trying to impress you with it, okay? But this does help us to understand that they had a word for it back in that day. The bath coal was the daughter voice. Coal is the word for voice. Bath is the word for daughter. Like Bathsheba means 
daughter of Sheba. It does not mean, it's not that because she was taking a bath on the rooftop, okay? So just want you, all right, so that's so the, the daughter voice of God or the echo of God's voice. And here's what they thought. There was a current teaching back then that said it had been 400 years since the prophet Malachi had, had, had lived, and God just didn't speak that way anymore. And there was a sort of thought that, that God had moved up into the third heaven, which meant it was like the suburbs of heaven, okay? So like if we were, the, if we were here in Fresno, that, that uh, he had moved out to, to Oakhurst, okay? And so he was out in the hub, suburbs of heaven, had got a big mansion there, was propped up on the porch with his feet, and he had a large telescope with his feet propped up and had this large telescope watching earth. And whenever there's anything that God wanted to say to people on earth, that God would relay it to an angel somewhere around Jupiter or something. It would say, hey, um, tell them that I said so-and-so. And the angel would go, got it, God. And then the, the angel would speak, the daughter voice of God. But God didn't get anywhere near earth anymore. Now, I know I'm, I'm making that. It wasn't exactly like that. They didn't you know, think that. But that's sort of the image they had. God had pulled so far back away that he didn't directly interact with us anymore. Yet Jesus was right there. And they didn't get it. They saw the Son of God there working, but they thought, that's not really God. That's just the echo of God speaking. <clears throat> because to be honest, there's a lot of people today that believe that God doesn't speak anymore, that God doesn't work that way anymore, that God just doesn't interact with his people like he did in the Old Testament. Okay? And there is another, there's another Hebrew phrase for that, baloney. All right? Okay, that's a, that's a rough translation there, okay? God does speak like that. He's still working with his people. He's still talking to them. And we're going to try to figure out what that's like. But again, this is something we, we, get, we get warnings so many times. We get voices so many times, messages from God, and we ignore them. Think about this, for example. All right, let's take smoking, for example. Now, I haven't been here long enough. I don't know if there's any smokers in the room. Okay, and I am not here to criticize you. All right, so if you're a smoker, please understand, I don't know who you, I grew, I grew up in the South, in Baptist churches in the South, where every day, it was a requirement to be a deacon was to smoke. Okay, in between Sunday school and worship, you leaned up against the building, kept it from falling down, and you smoked a cigarette real quick. So, but nowadays, every package of cigarettes has this warning on the side that says, warning, the Surgeon General has determined that this will kill you. All right, but I see smokers all the time, they're like, I, you know, I know it's bad for you, but I just can't quit. I picked it up as a habit a while back, and I, I, you know, I know it's going to be bad for you, but I just can't stop it. It would be like somebody that said, you know, when I was a little kid, I picked up the habit of hitting myself in the head with a baseball bat, you know, and I'm just used to it now, and I know it's going to give me brain damage one day, but it's just, you know, we just ignore warnings like that all the time. We ignore things like that. When I, uh, when I go back and visit my parents in the thriving metropolis of Valdosta, Georgia, my dad was a volunteer firefighter. Now, one of the things I've had in the past, I was a reserve firefighter in the Bay Area up in Marin, Marin County. So I had training with the regular firefighters. Well, my dad was the captain of the volunteer fire department. We lived one block outside the city, and I guess the hoses weren't long enough or something. They wouldn't reach out there. So we had to have a volunteer fire department. So I'd be home with my parents, and the, my dad had this pager, and the pager would go off. And we'd jump in his truck, drive to the fire station to pick up the, the, the fire truck, and then go out to fight the fire. Now, my dad had this old Ford F-150 pickup truck. I think he bought it for like $100, and he might have gotten taken. I don't know um, on it, but it was, uh, 
it was just ugly. He painted it himself. Painted it like sort of a rust brown. <laughs> and, and it was like, no, Dad, that's a great paint job. I can't even tell you did it stuff. Stucco's really in for a finish on cars nowadays. All right, but, but yeah, listen, I love my dad. My dad passed away like 22 years ago. I still miss him, all right? Great man. But, um, but he painted this truck. He fixed it up so it burned like a quart of oil a, a, a month rather than a quart of oil a week like it used to. But that's the truck we jump in to go drive to the fire station. And we jump in this old brown Ford F-150 pickup truck. Had the word firefighter and backwards on the front plate, you know, so you could see what was going on. Uh, it started belching that blue smoke out the back. But then my dad had something that I thought was just the coolest thing in the world. <clears throat> All right. How many of you remember the old Starsky and Hutch TV show? All right. A few of us are going to admit our age there, okay? All right. When Starsky and Hutch jumped in the car, do you remember what they did before they drove off? That's right. They reached on the floorboard, got that red light, and stuck it on the roof with the, with the magnets there. We had one of those red lights. It was so cool, all right? So we'd stick it on the dashboard. It had a shield so it wasn't flashing in our eyes, you know? So we'd go tearing down the freeway to get to the fire station in this brown Ford F-150 pickup truck, license plate in the front, belching blue smoke, and an emergency red light going like that. And we'd be barreling down the freeway, and we had to follow speed limits. When you have an emergency light vehicle, you, you can drive 15 miles over the speed limit if you're an emergency service vehicle. That's as fast as you're supposed to, supposed to go. So we're driving down the freeway, but you'd see what happened. There'd be people there, four-lane road, and you could see what's going on. That they'd be sitting there, 55-mile-hour speed limit, so they're doing 70. But as we're, as we're pulling up on them, you could see, as you're looking back at them, you can see people looking up in the rearview mirror like that and looking up and kind of wondering. And as they're talking, as they're looking, they're slowly pulling their foot off the gas, and they're slowing down to 60, 55, 50. And another conversation is, hey, Martha, look at that big old ugly brown truck behind us, blowing out blue smoke. Got one of them cool lights like Starsky and Hutch. Wish I had me one of them things. Not paying attention to what's going on. Because in Georgia, just like in California, a revolving red light means what? Emergency service vehicle. And what are you supposed to do? Pull off to the side of the road. They know that, but they don't care. They see the message, but they're so wrapped up in seeing the message, but not reacting to it. Just kind of bopping around there. All right. By the way, I'm, I'm pulling for a campaign. I want to get this proposition on the, on the ballot next time that the last test, the last question of the driver's license test is, are you an idiot? And if you answer yes, you fail, that would just solve so much. In our, but anyway, all right, wait a minute. I'm going to tell you guys, we're going to be here for a couple of months, all right? Not, to, I mean, not this sermon, but, and if you laugh at the stupid ones, you're going to get more stupid ones, all right? So you're training me how to communicate to you, so just be careful what you laugh at. Anyway, so there's a couple of silly illustrations. Tells you a little bit about my background, too, but now let me give you a serious illustration. Part of my job that I worked here in California, I worked for California Southern Baptists. And uh, as, a, as a worker with California Southern Baptists, I, um, I consult with churches. And so one of the things that I, that I was in the Bay Area, I was in Foster City, working with a church in Foster City. And one of my areas was youth ministry. I do love teenagers, okay? So I'm glad you guys are here today, all right? And, but this church was thinking about giving up their student ministry. They said, we don't want to do youth ministry anymore. It's just not, we don't have enough kids. It's not worth it. So I sat down with the leaders, and I started talking with them. I said, well, first, how many kids does it take it to be worth it? I mean, if you have one show up, you're going to like, yeah, it's not worth doing anything. Oh, no, 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 we'll, no, we still have to do student ministry, I guess. We're just not going to push it. I went, okay. Well, great. Well, let's talk for a moment. How many students do you really have? And they named about five or six students. I said, okay, now let's think for a moment. Are there students that used to come here that maybe have 
slipped through the cracks, but you could think of right now. And they wrote down three or four more names. And I said, how about, are there adults that come to this church who have kids who are youth age but, but aren't involved because you haven't really reached out to them? They wrote down three or four more names. I said, what about grandparents that are here that have grandkids that live in the community that aren't involved in a church right now? And they actually wrote down three or four more names. And I said, now, think about your neighborhood. Are there students you know in your neighborhood that aren't going to any church, but maybe live on your cul-de-sac or in your apartment complex or whatever? And they wrote down a few more names. And in just five minutes, they had a list of like 20 kids by name that they could reach out to in their church. Okay, wouldn't we kill for 20, 20 kids right now in our church? Yeah, we would. All right, so, and then here's the amazing thing, though. Not only had they missed those 20 kids whose names they knew, we were in their fellowship hall, and I walked to the door of the fellowship hall, and I threw open the door, and I said, what is that across the street? And I said, well, that's the middle school. And I said, really? So tell me, usually during school days, what's that middle school filled with? And they were like, um, students? I'm like, are you asking me or telling me? What is it? There's are students. And here in the church that said, we don't have students around here. There's not many students in our community. They're not people we can reach. Had been living, worshiping across the street from a middle school where every day of the school year, 181 days a year, by law of the state of California, over 100 students cut across their lawn in the morning to go to school, and in the afternoon cut across their lawn in the afternoon to go home from school, and they said, we don't have any students around here. I can tell I get passionate about that when we're talking about student ministry. But I'm telling you, there was a ministry there right in front of them that I feel like God was saying to them, because were, these, these were sharp youth workers, saying, this is what I've called you to do, and they were like ready to give up on it. I want you to know that within six months, that church had one of those vibrant youth ministries in the area. Just within six months, because these workers had now said, I get it. I see what's happening now, and I'm not just going to watch it. I'm going to do something about it. That's what we want to be able to do in this church. So again, let's look at our community. Let's zoom in just a little bit more on our community. And what are some opportunities in our community right around us that maybe God is calling us to be involved with? What's the housing like around here? Who are the people? Is your home within that area right there? What are your neighbors like? What do they need to know about Jesus? What does God want to speak into their hearts? Why is there a church planted right here? I learned another phrase long ago. I stole this from a friend of mine named Mark Clifton. Uh, he'll never listen to this, this live stream, so I could have just taken credit for it. But Mark, if you ever find it in the archives, I gave you credit, all right? But statement is, your address is not a mistake. God brought you here to this place for a reason. It's not for the ponding basin across the street may not be for the warehouses over down, down this way, though maybe it is. Maybe some of you have a connection there and you work with the workers that they don't live near a church or something. But God did not put us here by accident. I don't believe God said, they moved where? Really, Gabriel? Why did you let them do that? No. God knows where you are, and he's got a purpose for you here. 
So I want you to look at what those opportunities are that God wants you to do. We're getting to our last point now. This is the smallest group of people, but here's what I want our church to be. A church of people who make things happen. And in this passage, I only think there's two that I know of. First, uh, there was John the, ba- John, the writer, not John the Baptist, John the writer of the, the Gospel of John. He recognized it was a voice, and he was able to do something about it, to listen to it and respond. And because John, of who he was, we now have the Gospel of John, and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of the Revelation. And if John had not been a person to make things happen, think about this. Not only would we not have this story about Jesus, or the story about Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, but if John had not been a person who decided to make things happen, we would not have, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever, anywhere around, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. That's the kind of things you get from people who hear the voice of God and make things happen. And that's what we want to look at being as a church. The second one is, is Jesus. Jesus is the one who made things happen. And I want you to look, uh, we don't have it up on the screen again, but if you've got your Bible there or you're on the, on the app, the fresnochurch.info, I want you to look at that passage again. You go, in the, in the Christian Standard Bible that we were reading earlier, here's what it says. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour, but that's why I came to this hour. All right, Father, glorify your name. We'll just look at that, that part of that passage right there. I want to give you what I call Daryl's semi-inspired, loo- very loose translation of that passage. Here's what Jesus is praying. He's saying, Father, I'm not just troubled. I'm, I might be a little scared right now. There's no sin in being scared sometimes. And I think Jesus is praying, Father, I know what's coming next. I know we've talked about this. It's that crucifixion thing, and it's coming real quick. It's here fast. And Lord, I've seen them happen. They're scary. It looks like it hurts. And that's troubling me. And I'm I'm not completely certain what to say here. Father, here's what I want to say. Here's what I'd like to say to you. God, if there's any way, if there's a plan B, that we can do this some other way, let's do it. That's what I want to say. But, Father, that's not what I'm going to say. It's what I want to, but it's not what I'm going to. What I'm going to say, Father, is this. As scary as it might be, as painful as like it likes it is, that whole idea of being separated from you for the first time in all eternity, it's terrifying. But here's what I say. Father, you do whatever you need to do with my life in a way that brings glory to your name. That's it, Father. Whatever it takes in me to glorify your name, that's what we're going to do. Can we pray that same prayer that Jesus did? Father, whatever our church needs to do, however we need to change, wherever our focus needs to be, that's what we want to do. Let's take it a little more serious. Father, whatever it is in my life that needs to change so that you get glory out of my life, that's what I want to do. That's where we look at it this time together. 
I'm going to close. I know I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, this is going to be a little bit longer sermon than usual for me, but uh, not that I'm particularly short, but, um, but I don't want to let you know that right off the bat. So um, let me give you a couple of examples of some people that um, are people that make things happen real quick. Um, I think of one, a guy I know by the name of Randy Fields. Randy was a youth minister for, for a long time. I just want to give you examples of way the, what I think of people that make things happen. Randy served in the community of Grass Valley, and his church was right across the street from Nevada Union High School. And Randy felt like God was calling him to minister to that high school, and so they created a thing called the Lunch Bunch, where every Thursday they would invite hundreds of kids across the street over to their church to have lunch. They would have 250, 300 kids show up. They even had figured out how to feed kids for about $200 or less that they could do that to feed that many kids. In fact, we even helped them publish a cookbook on the Lunch Bunch cookbook, how to feed a bunch of kids cheaply. But they built such a strong relationship with that school that one day one of the kids at school wound up um, dying, wound up in an accident. And when the parents were meeting with the principal, just talking with them, the principal said to him, do you have anyone who's walking this journey with you? Anybody helping you with this? And they said, we, we don't. And the principal of that public high school reached in his desk drawer, pulled out Randy's card and said, this is the phone number of the youth minister across the street. Give him a call. Go visit him. He will help you walk through this. Can you imagine a church so strong that the principal of a high school would say, you need to connect with this guy? Now, that's one thing. But then Randy got called later to a church down in San Diego that was right next door to a high school. And part of his being called there was they were going to start a ministry to this high school. And they, um, they were getting everything ready. He spent the summer training people, buying the equipment they needed to do this lunch bunch. They were, going to be, they were going to be the church of East Claremont High School. That was their, their goal. They were going to be the church of East Claremont High School in San Diego and really reach out to the school. Week before school started, teachers went on strike. Changed all their plans. They were like, they were devastated. Like, they had, there was a picket line. They couldn't really cross the picket line. There was all this stuff going on there. And they said, what do we do? And they started praying. They listened to God's voice. And so, Randy started getting out there with a few of his leaders. And he would just walk the picket lines with the teachers and talk, not carrying signs, but walk with them talking. And they would just talk and listen. Listen for what their needs were. And the biggest need they found to teachers right then was, I don't know if anybody's been on a picket line before, but we're in a picket line. Anybody get any, any idea what the biggest need of teachers walking the picket line would be? Restrooms, yeah. So they decided to open their church restrooms up to the teachers there. And as they were talking with the teachers, they decided to turn their fellowship hall into a teacher's lounge. And so they started providing water and tea and coffee soft drinks for the teachers. The leaders who were going to be doing the cooking decided to sit down with the teachers during their breaks and talk with them, chat with them. They brought in some TVs um, and put them up and started playing some Christian videos and things like that for them and started talking with the teachers and befriending them. And then before the strike was over, one of the, the union leader for that school came up to the pastor and said, we need to have a place to have a union meeting could we use your sanctuary for it? 
Now, a lot of pastors said, like, a union meeting in our sanctuary? You've got to forget that. No, that's for our worship only. And he said, no, I think we could do that. We'd love to accommodate you. And he said, you know, Randy's been so nice to us. Maybe could Randy, like, just lead us in some singing or something? Something out of your hymn book would be fine. And he said, okay, I'll talk to Randy. I'm sure he could do that. And this union leader said, you know what? Actually, would you like to do some kind of, like, opening comments or something? You know, maybe something out of the Bible, something like that. And he said, well, let me pray about that. Yes. All right. Sometimes pastors really don't need to pray a lot to know God's will. Uh, and so he was able to present the gospel to 300 teachers at East Claremont High School. After it was all over, somebody walked up to him and said, I'm the union leader for all of San Diego County. Next month, we've got 8,000 teachers going to meet at the San Diego Convention Center. Could you do that same talk for them? And this same pastor wasn't he really that sharp a pastor in my honest opinion but we won't go okay he's not he won't ever hear this but but he had an opportunity to present the gospel to 8,000 public school teachers simply because this church had listened to God's voice in walking the picket line and talking with teachers and listening to them some little thing like that could make a big difference I know, I've, I know I'm, uh, again I'm going to do one more, one more story I'll try to cut back a little bit later but I want to once you get this idea I want to tell you about another guy, Tom Stringfellow. Tom Stringfellow is one of these guys. And this is what I'm looking for. is a church full of Randy Fields and Tom Stringfellows. Tom Stringfellow pastored First Southern Baptist Church of Beverly Hills. Like, wow, 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 how sad, you know. Church was about this size, but it, of course, had money. And this church was trying to figure out what God wanted to do mission-wise. And they had done a few things. Again, small church, they were running 80, actually, was their size. And as they prayed about it, they felt like God was telling them, we want you to go do ministry to one of the migrant centers. We feel like that's really important. They started doing research. There's like 27 migrant centers up and down California. And they discovered that most of those people are actually very poor. In fact, a lot of them, even though they pick our food, don't get a good meal, don't, don't get, have good nutrition, don't eat very well. And so they started planning to this, do this ministry of the migrant centers. And they started, plan, they started gathering funds. They started gathering resources. And here was their plan. They were going to go in and do a week-long thing at church, at, at these migrant centers. They would do like a vacation-type, vacation Bible school-type thing for kids during the day. They would do uh, a revival services uh, at night. They were going to partner with a Spanish-speaking church to do them bilingually. And they raised enough funds to buy a 25-pound sack of rice and of beans to give to every family in the migrant center. And for every kid in the migrant center, they, pro they provided them, we're going to provide them a set of brand-new school clothes and a fully stocked backpack to every kid in the migrant center. That's what they built like God wanted them to do. They would go, this guy was just weird. I don't expect any of you to do this, but he, this guy would go to Walmart, and he would uh, find like a clearance rack, and, uh, and he'd call the man, he'd get the manager over and go some, Basically, all those, that whole rack of children's clothes, I'll give you a dollar for it. He's like, what are you talking about? And he says, no, here's what we're doing. And a lot of times the manager would go, yeah, give me a dollar. And he'd walk out with a whole rack of children's clothes to be able to give to these kids because this guy was a wheeler dealer. But so they wanted to go, they felt like this is what God wanted them to do. This is what he was calling them to do. And so as they were preparing for it, they started looking for places to go. And migrant center after migrant center said, we can't allow that. Separation of church and state, we're not able to allow that. It's a government property facility. You cannot do anything with that. We won't let you. I'm thinking, again, it might be proof that 
to be in government. Anybody here? We have any government, any government workers, state government workers in this? Okay. All right. Cut the video for a second. Yeah, maybe proof that you don't need, you have to be very not bright to work for government service, the state government or something, so I don't know. But they weren't allowed to do it. So finally, from Beverly Hills, they found a church, found a place in Vacaville that let them do it. So there's a migrant center outside Vacaville that, uh, in Dixon that allowed them to come up and do it. They partnered with a Spanish-speaking church near there, and they did this whole thing. They did the revival services in the evening. They did the vacation Bible school during the day. They provided everybody with the, the rice, the beans, the food, the clothing, the backpacks, everything. It was Thursday, their next to the last day there. And a big black sedan pulls into the migrant center. And a guy in a suit gets out. Comes up to Tom Stringfellow and says, who's in charge here? And he said, well, people are under the impression that I am, so I guess I'll do. And he says, well, I'm from Sacramento. I'm in charge of all the migrant camps around the state. What is going on here? I want to know. And he thought, okay, I may be going to jail, but all right. And he just came clean. He said, this is what we're doing. We, we got permission to do it. We've exactly what we're doing here. Told him it was all a Christian-based thing. That they were, you know, people were making professions of faith, salvation decisions, that kind of thing. And the guy said, all right, well, here's my question. Next summer, could you do this at every one of the migrant centers around the state? <laughs> and he said, uh, no, but my denomination can. Then he called up my boss and said, hey, guess what I, guess what I committed you to do next year? But so now California Southern Baptists still have a ministry called Feeding Those Who Feed Us that does ministry multiple weeks across the state of California migrant centers. And have started at least two churches out of that. Now, I'm not sure to brag on Randy or brag on Tom, but here's what I want to say to you. That a simple little thing about figuring out what God wants us to do in a mission trip. Am I walking out of screen when I, am I losing people in the, I'll have to put tape down to let me know how far I can walk here so I'm not walking out of field division here. But, um, but I want to get close to you guys. All right, don't be surprised if I jump off this stage at some point to come, to come get close, all right? Don't, shouldn't, should not give a pastor a wireless headset, okay? All right, but I'm saying, God has something equally exciting and appropriate for our church in the future. God is not done with this church. God has some things for us to do that are going to be amazing, not because we're amazing, but because we serve an amazing God who still speaks to his people and still wants to work through them. So as we get ready truly to close, I want to say this. I want to ask you these couple of questions, all right? First, what does God want you to do at our church? What is it God is calling you to do right here to make his name known in the community that Fresno Church serves? That's what I'm asking you. And I'll leave you with this statement before we get to our, our, our closing time here. It's a guy named William Carey. He's called the father of modern missions. And William Carey had this phrase that he lived by. He said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. That's what we're going to be looking at in this future. What are we expecting from God in our future here at Fresno Church? And what is God calling us to attempt for him so that we, like Jesus, might bring glory to his name? Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words from John these words from Jesus. Father, thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit and what he has done. And Father, thank you for calling us together here as Fresno Church. 
And Father, we ask this, as we look to our future, it might be scary. Whether it's still the residuals of COVID or whether it's just fallout from things we've experienced in our past or maybe it's things going on in somebody's life that the rest of us don't even know anything about right now. But Father, as scary as it might be, none of us are facing crucifixion. But like Jesus, we want to be people who would say, no matter what, Father, no matter what it is, you do in our lives individually and you do in our church whatever it takes to bring glory to your name. In the name of your son, Jesus, who made things happen, we pray.